Welcome to Forward Looking Leadership, a podcast for visionary executives building future-ready organizations. I'm your host, Dan Freeling. I'm the founder of Contempus Leadership, a coaching practice that helps organizations develop their leadership pipeline through virtually unlimited coaching for their top rising talent. I'm honored to be joined today by Stacy Fernandez. Stacy has had an impressive 30-year technology career spanning multiple renowned companies. She was one of the earliest team members at Monster.com, where she revolutionized the way they utilized data to enhance their job search and match services. Since then, she has served as Chief Technology Officer at the Active Network, Plan Hub, and currently Owl Hub Inc., where she is dedicated to building AI-powered software solutions that allow for fostering an environment that values personal growth, collaboration, and innovation. Stacy attributes her success over the years to her then-unconventional, human-first leadership style allowing for the creation of workplaces where employees thrive and exceed expectations. Stacy is also a passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion in the tech industry, actively mentoring aspiring female technologists to pursue their dreams and break barriers. I met Stacy at a lunch table at a recent conference and was struck by her contributions to the conversation. This wasn't someone with the trite answers you often hear when it comes to the big technology and workplace questions of our time, but instead a thoughtful and passionate executive with both serious tech expertise and deep leadership wisdom. Listeners, you're in for an insightful conversation. Stacy, thanks for joining me on Forward Looking Leadership. First, how would you describe human-first leadership and why is it so important to you? In, in software development, we talk a lot about mobile-first design, right? Um, you, you know, meaning that we design software around sort of the assumption that our user base is going to interact with the environment that we're giving them via mobile device before anything else, right? So similarly, human-first, it's like mobile-first, and and we think about putting people and our team members at the center of our decision making, and it creates an environment that you know, values and supports the well-being and growth of individuals in the organization. So it includes, you know, prioritizing empathy, compassion, respect, and also to the, you know, the tough love, right? And making sure that we're asking those right hard questions at the right time. So, you know, I found that, you know, human first leadership kind of goes hand in hand with good coaching, right? It prioritizes the well-being and growth and development of individuals within an organization. The importance of understanding and meeting the needs of the employees and and creating sort of a work coaching culture and creating an environment where individuals can really kind of, you know, thrive and reach their full potential um, will in turn result in companies prospering, right? So the result is more retention, a more skilled team, a culture of collaboration and innovation, accountability, ownership, you know, all the things that you need. Um, within an organization to for it to be successful, right? And it does start with its people. So really kind of centralizing all of your decisions or, um, around, um, you know, your teams and, and helping them prosper, which in turn results into those bigger bottom lines, those better environments and, um, you know, more success for the company. I also feel that, you know, in order to have a successful DEI program um, at any org, you have to have that solid human first coaching style culture to support your DEI efforts. Right. And that takes a lot of work and commitment, executive leadership, you know, and, and, and equalization of, of um, leadership development for, for everyone. I, I just love that. And the, the link to the organizational results, but those coming through the the people and the DEI um, that you want to see in an organization having to to center people first. Right. How did 
yeah, how did how did you come to this realization? I know you've had a, a long career in in tech. How did you come to that realization of human first leadership being so crucial? Well, I mean, where, where I grew up in the tech space, um, you know, we would hear, you know, I would listen, you know, as a young tech, I would listen to my upper level management refer to us, um, you know, our teams as butts and seats, right? Or um, heads or hands on keyboards, right? Those were the kind of the, the terms that were wildly accepted, um, you know, back in the olden days where I started, right back in the 90s. Um, but when I, when I came to leadership, um, you know, I wanted to put martyrdom aside and not run a team uh, between the lines of fear, fear and blame, right? And, and, and not have so much turnover, right? I was, it was a very unconventional way for, for me to run a team to make a connection, help team members work toward their goals and where they wanted to go next. And that way they saw the task at hand as more of a stepping stone and a path towards their own personal success. And that resulted in a much more um, engaged associate, engaged team player, creating those safe spaces. Some of, some of the best ideas that I've seen um, come from those interns just coming into their profession or those support technologists. Some of the best revenue generating product ideas are coming from what we used to re- what we used to refer to, not me me personally, but what I've heard referred to back in the '90s and the early 2000s is butts and seats, right? Um, these are people. Um, so having experience being the butt in the seat and 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 growing my career um, through mentorship and and good leadership, um, I found that I didn't have to run a team that way. Um, it was more important for me to sit and and advocate for my team members. And as they, as I help them grow, the company does better. We increase retention, um, better skill sets, uh, better collaboration, more innovation. Um, if if it was just for me to make all the decisions and for me to have that idea, then the team isn't really all that important. And we know that's not true. Um, so I never saw people flourish um, or teams do well with that kind of mentality. Um, and yet, you know, oddly enough, it was like the dominant method of management for the, for a good part of my early career. So um, I never really felt connected to my workplace in the earlier days. I was just there for my paycheck and to go home and I, I wasn't really growing. So as I started to um, sort of change my approach, even acting as a coach with my peers and sharing my learnings with them, I started to see light bulbs turn on and, and people getting more engaged. And I realized that you know, this is a better way. This is uh, putting people before um, or putting people at the center of your decision-making was was the best way to be successful. I just love all of that and, and bringing in so many different ideas and so much innovation and driving organizational commitment. So these are all real serious things that executives are looking to do. And this human-first approach to leadership sounds like a, a great way to go about doing that. What what other shifts do you envision modern executives either having have um, needed to make in recent years or needing to make right now to, to stay up with the curve? Yeah, there's, um, you know, what I look back at when I became sort of like a, a VP versus, um, you know, 12 years ago versus, you know, a, a CTO just recently. Um, and modern executives, we need, 
we need to do better, right? Um, we need to enable a workspace that's innovative and inclusive and insightful, right? And and we have to rethink how work gets done, right? So, you know, for example, um, you know, talking about the DEI for just a second, it's incredibly important that we're aware, especially in the technical tech industry, that the number of women in technical leadership has dropped from 35 to 28%, right? What are we as executives doing about that, right? Since the pandemic, this is this is the statistic that came out of Techopedia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we as leaders need to we need to address that, right? We need more. We we know that women in leadership result in bigger bottom lines, yet the percentage is dropping. So what are we doing as executives to change that? That is a relatively new concept, right? That's not something we talked about um, 12 years ago. Me as a SVP or as a or as an early CTO wasn't things we talked about. Today, um, we we know that. Um, addressing these things result in bigger bottom lines, better sales, more passion, more retention. Uh, um, you know all the things that we're looking for. All of the all of the goals that executives have always had, but we found these sort of ignored methodologies or ignored principles that are now coming to the table. So we are we have executives are being held accountable for the cultures that they create. And, and the examples that they set, and they should be, it's not okay, again, to run any organization between the lines of fear and blame, right? The other thing is, is that I've noticed for myself, even personally, we need more diverse skills, right? The lines of tech and business functions are so much more entwined than they were, say, a decade ago. Um, so, for example, like some of the best data scientists that I've known are CFOs, right? That's not what you typically think. You think of the CFO as the accounting guy, right? Writing the bills, doing the budgets, right? But because technology has permeated itself throughout all, throughout the entire vascular system of pretty much every organization out there, um, executives who need more tech skills and tech executives like myself have had to diversify into more well-rounded, product-minded, marketing-minded um, uh, professionals. So we've been expected, um, like and me as a CTO, you're, you know, years ago, that was great. I could, I, I understood about servers and I could write code and I could execute a technical. Today, we have to liaison between the business, right? Because the digitization of what we sell, right? We have more digital products and more online offerings than ever. So just the mere existence of selling things that are digital require that, Tech leaders become more business-minded and business leaders leaders become more tech-minded. So I've enjoyed like the natural diversification of my skill sets through this change, but um, it's one that, you know, I've been very mindful of over the past few years. I find myself doing more product and marketing work in conjunction with sort of the tech leadership that um, I've always had to do. That's really fascinating. So a lot of seeing both organizational culture and technology as integral to the executive role rather than these sort of separate areas that someone else will do or that, you know, is not the main part of my job as an executive. They're coming front and center. Exactly. It's not just to HR anymore. And it's not just to the accounting guy anymore, right? It's everybody's much more entwined. And it's, I think technology has brought a lot of that. For sure. You know, and, and here's the thing. It's such a wonderful opportunity. You know, I've enjoyed the natural diversification of my skills um, as markets become more digitized. 
um, it's it can be more work and more learning, but what a great way to avoid pigeonholing yourself, right? If you're open to it. So um, I, I found, you know, the past five years of my career to be incredibly exciting uh, because of the diversification of what, um, what I've been taking part in. So I find it super exciting. What technology changes do you envision over the next five or 10 years? And I know there's no magic ball that will, that will provide these answers, but what, what do you see coming in the next five or 10 years? As a, as a, as a, as a nerd through and through, um, I, I read a lot about technology. Um, you know, artificial intelligence is going to permeate itself throughout everything. You know, um, we're going to see advancements in la- national um, natural language processing. We're going to computer more autonomous systems like self-driving cars. We're going to see more personalized assistance. Um, I suspect, too, um, in addition to that, that with AI trying to permeate itself throughout the entire offering of the world, basically, um, we're going to have to see more no-code solutions around it, right? Um, we're going to have to make it accessible. And that's going to require that technologists offer ways for people to get at it from a no-code perspective. Um, really good thing is, you know, the little chat box on my phone is a good example of that. But in addition to AI, um, you know, we're going to see um, the number of connected devices continue to grow. Um, you know, I'm starting to see even here in my hometown now, I'm seeing, you know, like more smart homes, more smart cities. My husband, who's a builder, people are asking for more technology to be built right into um, their homes, right? We're going to see, I think we're going to see more and more of that. Um, I find it interesting. I read the other day that um, 37% of the world's population is still not connected to the internet. That's like 3 billion people right? Have, they've still never used the internet. I find that astounding, right? And so um, I I, can't, I have to imagine that we're going to see more 5G and more enhanced connectivity going across the world as we enter into the next 10, 15 years, or maybe even five. Um, I, I've been watching, you know, kind of, um, you know, blockchain and cryptocurrencies. I'm interested to see, you know, you see it's kind of like, it's good. It's not so good. It's good. It's not so good. It's, um, I think we're going to start to see more and more global currencies and more technology around that. Um, my 17-year-old son keeps wearing this thing on his face. I think he does it to ignore me, but it really is AR, <laughs> right? It's virtual reality. Um, you know, I go back to, I think about, you know, as a mom uh, watching that movie, uh, WALL-E, right, from Disney. Right. Back, and everybody was just like sitting on their chairs with their things, with their masks, their VR systems connected to their faces. Um, but I think we will see more of that. It'll be interesting. Um, I think probably it'll mostly be in the gaming and entertainment, maybe educational, right? I, I, I think, you know, VR and augmented reality probably has its place in education um, and tourism. Um, so, and I think there's already parts of that. I remember working on a system years back for the active network where there was a VR um, experience that you could use to experience like a ski resort in Vail, right? So we'll, we'll probably see more of that. Um, I would like to see less of it though in my house. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to make a lot of sense to stay away from the brave new world aspects yeah, of this and yeah. onto the, you know, connecting all those people to the internet and exactly. unlocking all of that potential and, yeah, and the, the education. Yeah, please. Right. Yes. And then like, you know, I think too, and, and this one, you, we can't ignore it, right? Energy and sustainability, right? It's everywhere. But, 
you know, and so we all know like solar, wind energy, you know, electric cars, everybody's all over that. Um, good friend of mine, he runs uh, Blue Planet. Um, he's, you know, basically um, putting EV um, stations across the entire, you know, the entire country um, doing amazing work. But what I'm really interested in, I was just reading the other day about fusion technology, right? Um, and if we can find a way to harness that and, you know, into more of a micro delivery, it's, it will change the world. I definitely think that in the next 50 years, um, we'll find a way to, um, to harness, you know, fusion, fusion technology and to generate the zero emission energy sources. And it has the potential to pretty much change the power of how we power everything, right? It would be life-changing. So I'm, I'm hoping after reading that article that I read the other day that, um, that I'm alive to see it. Um, so I think um, that's probably going to be the next big thing over the next five decades. That's that's really interesting. I've, I've read a little bit on on that. So the, the basic idea is that there, there would be some sort of a way to harness nuclear fusion at like a household level, right? That you could, you yes. could basically power um, without needing to have emissions, without needing to have yeah. a lot of input and um, just really transform the way that we power everything. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's super, um, super exciting stuff. Again, I hope I see it in my lifetime, you know, and then we've got so many breakthroughs through, you know, technology, bio technology and healthcare, you know, I'm sure we're definitely going to be able, especially in the AI space as well. You'll see more of that, more automation. Um, you know, I see Rockwell out there, um, you know, doing some amazing things there. So, I mean, there's so much uh, quantum computing again, um, you know, it's still very much in its early stages, but I fully expect, you know, not maybe not in the next five, but in the next 10, 20, we're going to see advancements in quantum computing, um, especially in areas of cryptography um, and maybe even the drug industry a little bit, I think, too. That's uh, really, can you, can you expand a bit on, on that? Like what, what might be the opportunities from that? Yeah. So, um, so uh, quantum computing and, and cryptography, um, you know, for to solve complex problems that are like currently not feasible for our classical computing. Um, you know, I think that um, we'll be able to to increase the efficiency and the accuracy of um, solving much more complex problems. That that makes total sense. So it's, it's able to just. Um... Yeah, take on some of these things that are have, have not been in the realm of of our current technology and solving them in, in ways that that we currently don't think that the technology can address, which is just really fascinating as, as all these advancements yeah. are. And, and, at, and at those volumes, right? At those higher volumes, for sure. But again, yeah. still early stage, but something I like to read about. Um, there's still growing a lot, you know, and um, privacy, privacy and cybersecurity, you know, especially with the onset of this, this AI revolution that we're going through. So um, we'll start to see more and more needs for cybersecurity, increasing privacy. Um, you know, with, with all new technology comes new problems and new legislation. It's one thing I've learned. Um, let's build something really amazing and then throw it out there and let it go haywire. And then let's put a bunch of legislation around it. (laughs) (laughs) So talk about job security. It's fantastic. And you're just, you're just so used to that. Um, having, having seen these new emerging technologies come, come about and having been part of these new emerging technologies come about that that's the sort of process and that's how it, how it goes. And you're not as daunted by that as I think some people might be. Right. Right. So speaking of, 
AI, I know that's all the buzz lately, and there's probably some overhype with that, and there's probably some real benefit with it. What are the what are the biggest opportunities you're seeing with the use of AI? Uh, the biggest opportunity. So um, I would say AI is going to permeate itself everywhere, right? Everybody's talking. I mean, just go out to LinkedIn. That's all people are talking about is AI. Um, the reality is, is that uh, machine learning and AI has been around for a while. Um, I just think that with the introduction of um, open AI, it's again, becoming more accessible, people more aware of it, and they're starting to innovate around it. Um, I think, I still think the biggest opportunities are probably in the services space, um, recommendation engines, retail, transportation, in the services space. Like for example, a few years back, I worked with a couple of colleagues on um, doing some natural language processing around support calls and sales calls, right? So Gong, for example, is doing this, right? They're taking a sales call and then you're getting back a critique saying, hey, you know, maybe you should have said it this way instead of that way, or, you know, let's grade your conversation from a sales perspective, right? So you you basically teach something, you know, you, you, you teach a, a model, here's, here's a, a great sales call, right? And then you kind of use that as a benchmark to, to weigh it against what actually happened in the real sales call, right? Things like that. So we're gonna we're gonna continue to see that. Um, I think we'll see more in gaming um, and um, also in fraud detection and security. But some of the areas that I think people don't really think a lot about with AI that I tend to get a little excited about that I tend to read about um, is in law enforcement. So like facial recognition has been around for a while, um, but I was. You know, I, I read about um, how we're starting to use it for crime prediction. Like, I think there was a movie out there once about, like, how um, AI technology, I think it was with Tom Cruise, AI technology could um, predict a crime before it happened. Right? I remember that one, yep. Yeah, yeah. so, um, you know, I'm starting to see this come to fruition, right, on, on some of the, in some of the technical um, articles that I've read about and some of the things that they're doing in, with AI and law enforcement. So um, also AI-based emergency dispatch, right? So a lot of people are kind of afraid of AI, but in this case, like, I really see it as a way to improve human life um, and, and security, right? So um, I think that's a, a great opportunity. I don't know from a revenue perspective, but I think just from a cultural geopolitical perspective, it might be super interesting and, and helpful to our to the human race in general. Yeah, it's helpful having some of these um, science fiction examples way before the technology is coming yeah. about to think about what what could be some of the downsides to this and how can we guard against those too. Right, and then another place like my husband, like he's a, a builder um, and a and a GM, and um, the construction industry as a whole really has been a bit behind the curve. Um, in technology until the last decade, right? So now we're, I'm seeing, you know, as a former CTO at PlanHub, even we started to build some of this stuff, but just the, the work to create a bid or the work to measure a blueprint to um, determine how much lumber you need or how much copper wire you need from an electrical perspective. There are some companies out there that are using AI technology to help build efficiency and better accuracy around infrastructure building from commercial to residential to commercial residential like multifamilies and we're seeing this an explosion of use of um, AI and machine learning technology in the construction space I've even seen it recently 
with even contracts. So construction contracts and all of the documents that you need to have in place state by state is dizzying, right? My husband, like here in Florida, is one of the most um, litigious states in the union. So with that comes a lot of legal paperwork, things that, you know, a GM or an architect or a, a hammer swinger may or may not um, be well versed in, right? So there are now AI solutions coming out um, that legal institutions are pushing out for you to be able to say, here's my contract. And the, the machine learning model will read the contract and call out areas of interest or potential issue for the contractor or for the customer. So I'm starting to see that. I think that's super exciting. Um, and it definitely puts, AI will put and machine learning will put technology into the hands of people that may have not had the skill or the ability to be technical previously, right? So lots of no-code solutions. Um, a few years back, a, a colleague of mine um, and, um, and I worked on um, a system called Eagle View, which is owned by Vista Equity, and I believe Job Nimbus uses it as well in a partnership. But basically, it was um, using um, pattern recognition to um, assess damage through drones, right? So damages on roofs on drones or hurricane damage or things like that. So again, increasing the safety because, you know, having to go on top of a roof, there's a lot of liability there and, and roofing companies are paying wild amounts of money um, just because they are, it's a, it's a high risk business. So a company like Eagle View comes along and they basically take, you know, circle disaster areas or roofs to generate bids using drones and do their measurements from those images. So that's super exciting. Um, yeah, so much of this is um, the, so many of the positive benefits of this are it seem like they're enabling even smaller businesses to do without some of these really onerous, you know, legal costs or insurance costs yes. or um, things like that. So there, there's some huge opportunity there that I don't think people really think about when they think about tech in the abstract of like right. what is the real world application to this? How can this actually make it better? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So AI and its application outside of the SaaS space, right? Um, there's so much going on, especially like, again, just, you know, coming out of um, a couple of years at PlanHub, just, you know, things that um, we were doing there. And then um, I, I think, again, in the medical space, right, um, human life is going to be extended. Probably we, we will probably start to see people living past 100 years, right, with some of the developments in the genetic testing. Um, to predict and prevent disease, right? Um, you know, we've already extended our lifespan by I don't know how many percent over the past hundred years. Um, I think we're going to continue to see that, and it's going to be through the enablement of AI through um, medical um, medical systems, right? That doctors are using. I don't think you'll ever really get the human element out of it. I think that's super important. Um, we talk a lot about that in the coaching uh, the coaching space, right? Um, you know, doctors are becoming more and more human centric or focusing more on being that whole self in the examination room. But these technologies for AI to help find things that maybe a human can't find right away um, will extend human life. So that's that's that that will be world changing for sure. That that really is a world changing idea. That's really amazing to yeah. think about it because we, I mean, we've seen incremental extensions of of life, which have been amazing. But that that would be fascinating to think about even going beyond what we currently think of as a lifespan. Yeah, and then like you know, here at Owl Hub, um, you know, um, the reason why I came here is because I believe that a good coaching framework and a coaching culture is imperative to 
women feeling safe in technology and in the workplace in general and all, all, you know, um, all members of, of diverse backgrounds. Right. Um, so, um, he even, you know, the coaching business itself and that, you know, there was something about this in the ICF that we, we attended. And I think this is how we met, right. was how can we use AI in the coaching space, right? How can we use AI and machine learning to drive our passion for creating human first cultures in the workplace and getting more diverse participation in professions that we haven't historically seen. And so this is sort of my passion here at Owl Hub. So Owl Hub is this amazing um, coaching framework. It's the only science-backed um, respect-style coaching methods is the only science research-based framework out there developed by David Morelli, um, who um, asked me to come work with him. And um, we are, I'm in the process of building an AI-based um, application that's going to help permeate the respect coaching styles throughout an organization and making it easy for them, right? There's how many leaders out there and how many coaches? It's disparate, right? There's, there's, um, you know, not enough coaches for, for the leaders that, that need to become good leaders and good coaches in order to foster positive cultures in the workplace. So how do you, how do you build the software to do that? Right? So, so, you know, here at Owl Hub in the coaching space, um, you know, we're building out, um, an AI framework to help with that. It's it's amazing work that you're up to there. And I think it, it's, a, it's such a refreshing perspective in some ways. There's this scarcity mindset that can come around coaching of, you know, there's only so many coaching clients out there, but there's another way to look at it, which is leaders really need coaching, especially as we're entering into this new world that we talked about yes. before. And how can AI leverage that positive human yes. first leadership and spread right. it into the organization. Like you're saying. Yeah. Imagine, imagine if you're a new leader, right? I remember, you know, the first time um, I was promoted to a manager. Okay. I maybe a day or two of training and they threw me in there and said, great. And I are managing people. Um, wouldn't it be great for me to be able to, to have a difficult situation with an employee type it up and say, I'm having this problem with this employee. Blah, 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 blah. I need help. Right. Um, and, and not have to run to an HR department, get a meeting, whatever it might be, and, and have and have a virtual assistant. Right. That understands coaching methods, in this case, the Owl Hub framework, and that can suggest and advise that new manager on how best to proceed. Right. Um, I, I think that I, that is that's the only way that we can scale this. Right. As humans, so while the human is still delivering the message, how does the human get the guidance that they need, right? Not everybody not everybody walks into leadership knowing everything. I certainly didn't. I don't think anyone does. And I don't think that we ever do, right? So how do, how do we efficiently get help and how do we continue to push that culture forward, up, upward and downward throughout an organization? And there, there has to be an efficient way to do that. Yeah, and there, there's so much of the um, more transactional kind of coaching, like the the you know the even the outside of coaching as a unique discipline and into like that general kind of business advice or guidance. Um, I think so much of that can be done um, through tech, and then that actually frees up the best coaches to do that really touchy transformational work that is needed to 
to really change leaders and make them better. But it's it's not necessarily the sort of small ball, um, you know, the the small guidance that would be really helpful for a new manager to have or something like that. And it, it's I think it's something that can work in tandem and work hand in hand with great coaching. Right. I mean, how, like sometimes it's just a matter of asking the right question the right way. Right. Um, you know, instead of saying, you know, why are you late to work? You may want to say, how can I help you get to work on time? Very different impact. Yeah. I'm really excited to follow along and, and see how this progresses and see what you're able to, to do with this because it's, it's a super exciting space and something I'm personally very interested in. Yeah, I have such a passion for this. I bring, being able to bring technology to addressing some of the culture problems that we have, especially in the tech space. And it's in other spaces too. It's just this is my experience. Um, I, I think finding be, having a synergy between the two for me has been seriously exciting. Um, and I'm, I have such a passion for it. I, I, um, I can't stop working at it <laughs> to be honest. It's, it's really, it's really showing through. And I think that when, when we first met, I, I was, um, really hearing that. And it's, it's something that's, that's, um, again, just refreshing to, to hear and to hear that somebody so well versed in tech is, is thinking like this is, is amazing. Um, so, all of these opportunities for bringing AI and tech into the people space, into the culture space, into the coaching space. What challenges do you anticipate in in yeah. doing this that you'll have to overcome? Yeah. So as we mentioned earlier, right, anytime you bring in a new technology, we've got to build a bunch of legislation around mm-hmm. it. <laughs> the regulations <laughs> coming. That is absolutely a different note. Um, and there'll be there'll be a lot, right? So with the introduction of CCPA, GDPR, privacy, all the stuff that you know, all us all us CTOs have to be well trained in to protect data. Um, AI kind of promotes a very interesting problem, doesn't it? So. Um, you know, a couple of things, right? First of all, the ethical consideration, right? These systems have to be designed and implemented with ethical considerations in mind, make sure that we don't have bias, make sure that there's privacy, protections, transparency, accountability, you know, um, all of the things, right? So um, we have to make sure that any automated response is following all of those rules, right? We can't have, I can't ask chat GPT for somebody's social security number, right? Can't do it. Right. It may be out there on the web somewhere, but cannot do it. Right. So um, so we have to make sure that, um, you know, privacy and security is is um, and, and bias um, is is eliminated from any solution. Um, the other. Um, I think the other area, too, that I'm seeing um, sort of and I think we did talk about this even at the ICF conference is intellectual property. Right. So like like ChatGPT, for example, it's just an index NLP engine for like the entire Internet. I mean, that's literally what it is. Right. GPT is trained on a large data set of human generated tests. Right. So so. AI didn't create the Internet. Humans did. And now this AI engine has everything that humans have done on the internet. So it's possible that the text that it generates is going to contain elements that are similar or identical to existing works. It's possible, right? So, um, you know, the way that ChatGPT is handling this is that it basically says that we don't own anything and, you know, it's your copyright, it's not ours. But I think that we're going to start to see more and more in this area of protecting IP and how to do it and how to do it right. And I, I think there probably will be guardrails for um, and, and, and rules put in place for technologists to adhere to. 
Um, I, so I, I definitely, I definitely see, um, part of that, but then, you know, from a cultural perspective, right. Um, a lot of people say, oh, you know, I'm, you know, AI is going to put me out of the job. Right. Um, so how do we, um, integrate AI into this people space that focuses on augmenting human capability as opposed to just like replacing them? Right. How can we make people better at their jobs through AI as opposed to how can AI replace people? Right. Um, so I, I think there's um, especially in more of the service based jobs. Right. You know, um, but I think back, you know, like my dad's like, you know, this village Greek guy. Right. He owns a restaurant. OK. And when I was in college, I used to waitress there to make money, gas money, whatever. I need books. You name it. And. One of the things that I that struck me was I had these customers that would come in and they would ask for my table every time I want to sit at Stacy's table and they came in to see me. I created an enjoyable experience for their dinner. Right. They were happy to see me. They knew they were going to get good service. There was some fun banter. Um, you can't replace that with AI. Right. So I think that, you know, as people um you know, have some fear about a robot replacing their job or AI replacing that human element is still going to be there. And we as humans still desire and want that. Right. And we, we always remember that good human interaction first. Right. I'm sure that, you know, 10 years down the line after this couple came in, they probably didn't remember what they ordered from me, but they probably remembered me being their funny, fun waitress at the time. So, I, I think there's some fear there. I think people are going to have to, you know, kind of get to that understanding that that human interaction, that element of service is still something that we as people seek out in addition to efficiency. That that seems spot on from what I've seen in, in how AI can be best employed. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it is really amazing that it can take on a bunch of these efficiency challenges and it can take on some of these um, complicated computing challenges and some of these even complexity challenges of, you know, how do we approach this in a way that is, has not been done before, has not even been thought of before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, keeping the, the people front and center, I think is, is going to be key. And yeah, exactly. As you said, how can AI enable people to, to do more of that human touch, to do more of the people centered approaches exactly. rather than just turning everything into a, a sort of robot future? Exactly. Exactly. You know, um, I think there's been too, too much science fiction. On this, but yeah. You know, and then, I, and I think too, like, you know, as a, as a person that designs, you know, tech, technical solutions for people to use um, accessibility and inclusivity, I think it's going to be probably really important, right? We need to make sure that um, AI technologies are accessible and inclusive for all individuals, like regardless of like what their abilities are. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, like the, we're going to have, we're going to see more um, focus on like um, those who have limited access to technology, those with disabilities, things like that. So I think um, that's probably something else that needs to be solved. This is, this is something uh, again, that I, I just um, really admire about your approach and your perspective for this is you're, you're putting this front and center and you know, how do we, how do we make sure this is inclusive and, even more than that, how do we make sure that it's it's something that can be used to build cultures and organizations that are inclusive and just the the opportunities there are enormous. Right, right. So speaking of inclusivity, um, 
I know you often get asked what it takes to become a woman chief technology officer from budding technologists. How do you generally answer that? Um, the, I get this question quite a bit, um, especially, um, you know, I've, I've um, taken time to make sure that I'm pulling more women um, out of their recent graduates or a senior year of college, pulling them into um, internships. Um, I do have a small consulting company and I'm right now working with, um, you know, a lot of um, local colleges to help um, inspire more women in tech um, and then um, offer them internships, even just for a a simple project, right? Um, Just to get them exposed to it. Um, But, you know, and so I get that question a lot, um, you know, from especially that, that group. Um, and the first thing that I tell them is, is don't think about your gender. Think about your skill, right? Focus on the, focus on your skills above all else and take every opportunity to learn, right? When you see a free course, take it. There are so many more ways to learn these days. I remember when I had to go and get my Oracle certification, it was like this $3,000 thing. I had to drive to Oracle in Burlington, Massachusetts, and I had to sit there for five days straight and have my brain lobotomized right in a classroom, um, today, you've got Udemy, you've got TechEd, you've got so many ways to learn. Don't ignore those, right? If there's something you want to know, chances are you can take an eight-hour class and get a good overview and get enough information to go off and try it yourself. So dedicate your life to learning your craft. That is the most important thing, right? Um, when, we, when they say, well, you know, what, you know, what classes should I take? I'm like, a database design class. You must learn agile and you must lose your fear of speaking in public. Those are serious things that every, to be an executive, you have to understand data. You have to understand agile methodology as a CTO, and you must be able to speak to people clearly. It's a, it's a must. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, a good mentor or coach, another woman is always great. Um, take a coaching class, right? Um, again, um, you know, I've taken a lot of coaching and leadership classes as you're growing into leadership, learn to educate yourself on the emotional intelligence. Um, again, I haven't seen a framework better than Owl Hub, which is why I'm working here, um, but it's a must. Um, also privacy and security, the protection of data that is paramount to the success. And then most important, especially for women and members of diversity is to accept the role that has the culture that you're seeking. Don't just go for the paycheck. The paycheck will come with your skill and your accomplishments, but you must be able to walk into the door and having opportunity in front of you. Okay. Um, if you, if you walk in and don't be afraid to walk away from a culture that doesn't give you what it, what it needs. And I had to learn that the hard way I've walked away from positions and taken pay cuts because I knew that the culture just wasn't right for me, that it wasn't open to the idea of a woman CTO. I've been there. Um, I remember somebody saying to me, oh, you're a CTO. You don't look like a CTO. What does that mean? Right? What does that mean? My answer was simply thank you. That, that, that meant that I was different, that I, that I was memorable, that maybe I had something to offer. So I tell them that, you know, I tell any young woman or any, you know, any member, it could be a woman. It, I mean, it could be anyone from any background, it's important to remember that as a woman in tech, that you have an opportunity to offer perspective that's unique. 
And that's in addition to the gender norm stereotype that we've that we've gotten to know in our culture and tech, right? And that's a positive thing, right? If we were all the same, it wouldn't be gross. So don't be fearful to sit at the table and offer the knowledge that you've got and seek it from others, right? So also asking good questions, prepare for everything. So, you know, just good, the good study habits that we learn, what, the reason why we all go to school, right? Remember those things. And then, um, you know, work toward a passion and just not a paycheck. And it just, if you, if you employ that um, and always follow through your deliverables, you know, it's going to result in just a natural awesomeness because you're better at, we're always better at doing something we love, right? So forget your gender, be good at your craft, and don't be afraid to have a different perspective. And if, and if that's not welcome in the culture that you're in, then go find one that is, right? It's important um, because you're not going to grow in a stifling culture where diversity is not being embraced. And again, going back, executives have a responsibility, an absolute 100% responsibility to foster a culture of inclusion. Uh, that's all just such wonderful advice. And it, it seems like seeking that seeking that learning and mastery is so critical to this and putting yourself in the positions where you have a chance to do that. So what, um, what books or other resources do you find yourself returning to the most often that help you as a leader? Oh God. Well, you know, it, this is an older publication, but it's still my favorite is uh, people first leadership by um, Eduardo Braun. It's something that I literally keep on my desk. Um, it's a book like this guy just went out and like did like thousands of hours of conversation with like these world-class leaders. Right. And through all of that research, he found like five key roles that leaders use to inspire people to strive for greatness um, and, and, and turn change into the world for good. Now this thing, like the thing that's interesting about that book is that that was published in 2016. Right. So uh, the latest edition. So it's like, it's not even like a new idea. But it just doesn't feel like we've been embracing it until recently, right? And I, and I wonder, I tend to think like, okay, you know, so I remember like, you know, I had a CEO one time tell me like, you're too much of a people pleaser. Um, and I was like, well, actually, I think that's a good thing, right? Um, and being a people pleaser doesn't mean I'm nice. It means that I'm focused on the development of others. And I understand that growing my people and asking them the right questions at the right time and challenging them at the right time and, and consoling them at the right time and showing compassion when it's necessary um, to, in order for them to build strength is super important, right? So um, People First Leadership by Eduardo Braun really kind of, he was one of the first. There's so many publications out there now, but this one I really like, and I think it's super nuts and bolts, grassroots, and you're hearing directly from, you know, world-class leaders um, of some of the largest um, organizations out there. So I love people first leadership. Um, my other one, um, I had a problem in the beginning um, with difficult conversations. Um, I try often tried to avoid conflict. It's something that I had to learn. Um, and so um, I loved uh, Radical Candor um, by Scott. Um, you know, she did a, a great job of how to communicate the good and the not so good and how to do it well. Um, so, um, this read really helped me out with that. So, um, that's one that I keep 
quite often. I, I, I hear that one recommended a lot, and particularly by the the kind of people. Um, like it sounds like you are, where you're you're so people centered, but sometimes that can come with a, a bit of an aversion to conflict. And yes. um, a resource like that can really help. And how do you approach this in a in a productive way that actually you know works out for the benefit of everyone involved? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that was you know I had a really I had a hard time with that in my early career. Um, and then my IAPP data privacy law book, <laughs> that one, <laughs> I can't, I have to have that here with me all the time. Everything is about data. Um, and everything is about protecting data. So unfortunately, this is a book that I go to constantly. Um, and every time there's a new edition, I, um, I, I, I buy it. Um, so the, the IAPP book on data privacy for the EU, as well as the United States, for your SIP certification is a must have for any technologist. I don't care who you are. If you're in tech, you're in data and you must know how to protect it. Um, from a more personal side or more like, you know, self-improvement, um, you know, one of my favorite books um, is uh, When Breath Becomes Air. Um, um, I think, um, you know, this is, this guy's a brain surgeon. He, at the age of, you know, 35 or 36, whatever it was, you know, he developed a, it's a story about his life and he developed uh, terminal lung cancer and, and wrote a book while he was going through it. Um, but if that book is not about dying, it's about living. And, um, you know, one of the quotes from that, and I actually kind of have this printed is uh, human knowledge is never contained in one person. It grows from the relationships we create between each other and the world and is still never complete. Right. So isn't that really human first leadership at, at, at its nucleus, right? Isn't that what we're talking about? We're talking about how we bring connection into the workplace and become a better leader. And I think this quote says it beautifully, right? We don't know everything and it's not contained in one human. It grows from the relationships that we create between each other and the world. And it's never complete, right? So that quote in itself, I think, epitomizes the book very well, at least for me it did, you know, and it keeps me humble. So um, it's something, it's a read that I think um, every leader should should have in their library. That's that's beautiful. And I think especially as we've been discussing when leadership is transcending the old kind of, you know, management frameworks and, and growing to something bigger and more about people and more about broader culture that a book like that with, with that kind of a very serious, you know, life and death perspective can really open that up. <laughs> yeah, I think so. You know, there was a lot of buzz around, um, <clears throat> you know, um, uh, Stephen Jobs and, you know, what he said, you know, from his death, but kind of similar, but this one, you know, Paul, um, Paul Kalanithi, he, he examines it in a more intellectual way in a way that we can kind of apply it, I guess, a little bit more than, than what Steve Jobs did, which felt like, you know, just more of like, you know, a letter about me. Um, this book was really not just about him. It was about, you know, examining, um, us as humans and our place in the professional world and how it shapes us. And so I just, um, I think, and again, it's a quick read. It's not a very good book. I, um, not a very long book, rather. Um, I think it's it's something that um, everybody should have in their library. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. What um, people, publications, podcasts, anything else like that uh, do you keep up with so you can stay ahead of the curve? 
Yeah, so um, <clears throat> lately, um, Dr. David Morelli of Owl Hub, right, his uh, podcast and his blogs, um, he just recently put out some amazing articles and uh, an amazing article in Choice Magazine. Um, but again, um, having been trained as a respect coach and gone through the respect coaching styles, um, it's really the only framework that's provided me with actionable methods that I can actually apply to all levels of an organization and be able to measure it, right? There's some amazing case studies coming out of his work. Um, so while I'm building a system, um, I do subscribe um, to his publications and his podcasts, and I read them often. Um, for me, um, going through his program was it really did rewire me and it kind of affirmed sort of what I always felt the right way to lead was, but I didn't really have a way for somebody, you know, in the early days really have a way to kind of, you know, articulate it um, as much as he's done. Um, so um, I definitely recommend that one. Um, I also love to work in bootstraps and smaller startups. I've worked in the big corporations. I love to work in the smaller organizations because there's just such a variety of tasks at hand that I can, that I can dig into. I like to do things and stay busy. So I'm super, um, I find myself going to the startup hustle blog quite a bit. Um, there's all kinds of tips and tricks and things that people in bootstraps and startups are doing that I find fascinating, you know, there's some amazing ideas. Um, and then I wouldn't be a CTO if I didn't like open up TechCrunch every single day, wire.com and, and the Gardner magic, magic quadrant must do those three are these people. So um, I tend to, I tend to hit those almost on a daily basis. And you're, you're seeing the integration of um, what you, what do you think is important in, in bringing to this new modern executive role of that, you know, coaching best practices and the latest research and then, um, also just, you know, the, the best practices from businesses and then what's, what's coming out in the startup space. And yeah. um, I think that's a, that's a cool example of all these different areas that people can think of as separate, but they're really critical to a well-rounded technologist and a well-rounded executive. I agree. So Stacy, thank you so much again for, for joining us. Where can listeners learn more about what you're up to, what Owl Hub is up to and, um, keep in touch. Yeah. So, um, Owlhub.com is the best, right? We're going to be putting out, um, similar to the ICF, we're going to be putting out um, to find your top coaching style. Um, so you can go out there and um, kind of learn about the framework and um, find out what your top coaching style is, which is super exciting. I'll be putting that up on the homepage um, over the next week. Um, you can find us at ICF and Sherm Conferences, just how we met. Um, we're kind of all over. Um, you can follow us on LinkedIn. And again, uh, Choice Magazine, um, which is a coaching magazine, David put out. Um, sort of the science of coaching, right? And the respect style coaching re re revolution um, that, that he has started this, you know, he's really, while his work is, is 20 years in the making, you know, Owl Hub really is a young company really making big changes um, in the leadership development and coaching space. And um, again, um, having gone through so many of them like DISC and, you know, um, Hogan and you know I'm a great I know about my personality I know about what kind of leader I am but what am I bringing to my coaches right and that's really the difference with Owl Hub is your coaching style so um, owlhub.com is the best place and um, and LinkedIn for sure yes I definitely encourage um, coaches but all executives in general to, to check that out. We'll definitely put the links in the show notes. So Stacy, thank you so much again. I've, I've really learned a lot in this and I think people will find a lot of insight in our conversation. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you got something out of the show, if you could please share it with a colleague, leave a quick review on the podcast app you're using, it'll help to spread the word so others can find us. And Stacy, thank you so much again. 
The pleasure was mine. Thank you so much, Dan.